thank you to our musicians. Thank you for helping us so much as we sought to worship the Lord this morning and to remember uh, the fact that He indeed has come in the form of Jesus Christ and now lives with us by His Holy Spirit. We are we want to make that our our focus and our dwelling in our, that we have in our minds. Uh, it's my first time to address you for a while, and uh, it is Deborah's and my desire to say thank you. And in doing so, I realize that I can only begin to say thank you to the leaders, the congregation at Elk Point Baptist Church, in fact, uh, some may be joining online this morning from Elk Point Community and surrounding area. And uh, your love and compassion has not gone unnoticed. And so it's our uh, desire to be able to spend time with each one of you as the days and months go by and, and to uh, really be able to, in a personal way, communicate our gratitude uh, to you. And as I say, we can only begin to say thank you at this, this point. Um, I welcome those who are watching online. I thank you that you've taken the time this morning to stop and to take some time to join with us in worship and to hear the Word of God preached. In doing so, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Micah. The Old Testament book of Micah, it's found in the Minor Prophets. It's located between Jonah and Nahum. So if you hit one of those books, you're close. I'm not trying to be facetious, but the reason I give you time is probably like me. You, it might have been a while since you found Micah and read something in Micah. Um, and uh, that's okay, I forgive you. I'm in the same boat. And so turn with me to Micah chapter 1. Um, my text is going to be found in the fifth chapter as the students in Mrs. Shepherd's class so ably communicated. But uh, you will end up getting a little bit of an overview of Micah. And if anything... Uh, one of the secondary uh, objectives of, is that if something I say today inspires some desire in you to read Micah, uh, I would encourage you to do that. But I would first of all ask that you join with me in prayer. Our ever-present God and our Heavenly Father, the ancient creed said so clearly we believe in the Holy Ghost we believe that you are present with us and now Heavenly Father I'd ask that you would invite the Holy Spirit to fill us that we would set our minds on things above where Christ is that we would set our affections on things above 
that you would cause our wills, our whole being to be instruments of your glory. Help us as we look into your word to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that encouragement from heaven would fall upon us all as we look at this ancient literature and in it we will find grace and mercy for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I prayed that we're looking at ancient literature, I mean that. This is written about 700 years before the time of Christ. Written by the prophet Micah. You'll see in the first verse, and I'll refer to a couple of verses before we get to our text. You'll see in the first verse, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. There's a lot there, but just to give you a summary, Micah lived in Moresheth, which was in the southern part of Judah. If you were an American, he was in the real south. I mentioned the southern part of Judah because at this time, Israel, having gone through civil war, was a divided nation. There were 11 nations to the north, referred to in the scriptures as Israel. The center of their idolatrous worship was Samaria. You'll see it's mentioned in the first verse. The southern tribe was made up of one tribe, Judah. That's the area that Micah lived. In fact, you would think that Micah's prophecy would be directed towards the southern people. But in the first verse, we realize that his prophecy encompassed the entire combined nation. He's writing to Samaria in the north and Jerusalem, the center of worship, in the south. The reality is that <clears throat> both nations are living contrary to the covenant of God. They are living as lawless, rebellious, disobedient people. In the second verse, you see that coming from the prophet is these words, Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that's in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. If you were in a courtroom setting, Micah, would point our direction to the prosecuting attorney who was laying charges. And the prosecutor in this case is none less than God himself. 
the Lord of all, from his holy temple, he is prosecuting his nation with crimes that they have committed. The leaders were greedy. greedy. They were stealing from people. If you read the book, you'll get the sense of that, and I'm just giving you a summary. The prophets that were active within both nations were prophesying on behalf of God for financial gain, if you could believe this. If you wanted to hear a prophecy, first of all, you wanted to hear a good prophecy, meaning that it made you happy, and you would have to pay the prophet to hear that. Can you imagine the deception? Please tell me a lie and I'll pay you for it. If you think that moral corruption runs deep, you're right. The leaders were stealing from the people. The prophets were prophesying for financial gain. And the people on a whole were living unjustly. They were robbing from poor people. They were abusing the marginalized people of society. I'm certainly not going to go here this morning, uh, but I, I doubt if you miss the relevance. I could be speaking, I could be writing for the Edmonton Journal this morning. Corrupt leaders, <clears throat> pastors who tell people what they want to hear and get a lot of money from that, and people who have ignored the marginalized of society. I could be reading today's newspaper. <clears throat> what was the judgment of God? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, if we read the book, we'll find that God is going to bring the nation of Assyria against the north and wipe them out, which eventually happens. And when that's done, he's going to bring the nation of Babylon in to finish the job but focus on the south, there's going to be three invasions that eventually decimate Judah. Not very good news at Christmas. The book, Micah, is written in kind of a fluctuating way. Intentionally, I believe. It's written with warnings and threats. And then, thanks be to God... We have a section on hope and restoration. How sad it would be if, if we read the whole thing and God hadn't chosen to give the nation and to us this morning any hope. For instance, after warning in chapter 1 and 2, after warning of the coming devastation, if you would look at chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 you'll see a wonderful promise of hope and restoration. <clears throat> After all the devastation and the disgrace and the loss, we read these words, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. 
I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by them. Their king passes on before them. Notice the last phrase, the Lord is at their head. If you're reading this in your Sunday afternoon reading, read chapters 1 and 2 really quickly, but get to the end of chapter 2 just for a little bit of sunshine. The same thing happens. Chapter 3 picks up the charges and picks up the warnings and the, and the call for judgment. And then at the end of chapter, or the beginning of chapter 4, we have another uh, hope, a sign of hope, another, another, uh, another thing to give us something to hang on to. And we read in chapter 4, in fact, the entire chapter, it starts, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of, Jake, into the, house of the God of Jacob, and so on. Jump down to verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I've afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off, a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Chapter 4 then starts to take us into an insight Notice I'm still just giving you the overview of the book. Chapter 4 then takes us into an insight into something we're going to spend a few more minutes on before I conclude. But this king that will reign forevermore, we're going to find out is the promised Messiah that will come from Bethlehem. And the point that I will make now and then at the end of the message is Micah is promising <clears throat> the messianic reign of Jesus Christ to start in Bethlehem. Not culminated, yet to be seen in all its glory, but the messianic reign of King Jesus started in a little town called Bethlehem. We're going to get there in a minute, but you still haven't got a sense of the book yet, have you? So we'll skip over that. Chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 6 and 7 go into more devastation, more, more destruction, more judgment, more shame. And then notice how the book ends. Go to the very last page. In Micah, Micah 7, verse 18. We read these words, and they're familiar to you, I know. You've heard them elsewhere, sung in music. Verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? Don't, 
Don't you like to hear that? Doesn't that refresh your soul after... If you had been reading with me all these chapters of devastation and judgment and condemnation, don't you just feel refreshed to say, who is like you, God, pardons iniquity, passing over transgressions for, his, for the remnant of his inheritance. This is the focus of the promise on the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You've heard that phrase before, haven't you? Now you know where it comes from. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to your fathers from the days of old. Beloved, I want you to notice as, as I've given you the schematic of Micah that even though God had in his holiness and his righteousness has brought devastation and judgment on this nation, he has given them evidence of his grace all along the way. And if you were an Israelite at this time, you might say, well, on what basis can I trust this God? And the prophet ends and teaches us how we can trust God. Number one, verse 18, you might want to mark this down. You can trust God because of his character. You may not know all the ins and outs of what's happening. You may go through times of great mystery, great questioning, but beloved, this morning, you can trust God on the basis of his character. He is a God who is willing to forgive, who loves to forgive, who delights in steadfast love. His anger does not retain forever. Now, I see a picture of the character of God here that says you have steadfast love, and that's a special name for love. It's not like marital love or family love or community love. The steadfast love of God in Hebrew is hesed. It's the, it is the covenant-keeping love that's displayed to his covenant people, those who have come to him in faith. And to the remnant, to the covenant-keeping people, to the true people of God, God's steadfast love swallows up his anger. You can trust the character of God. And you can, you can also, you can trust the faithfulness of God. Verse 20, you will show faithfulness to Jacob. The prophet then takes us to the patriarchs where the, where the initial covenant was made. That God would call out a people from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... He would call out a people, a remnant from the earth, called by his name, who in the new covenant would experience the new birth, the poured out spirit, the forgiveness of sins, and their God will be God, and he will be their people, or they will be his people. God is faithful. He is faithful. 
from the midst of this drama of Micah. Now let's start the sermon. Turn to chapter 5. There's a reason why I did it this way. My colleague and my friend Josh made that clear last Sunday. My text this morning is Micah 5 verse 2. Allow me to read it as you follow along. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. I hope you understand why I drew your attention to something Pastor Josh said last Sunday. You'll notice that verse 2 starts with a contrasting conjunction. And if you have a verse of Scripture that starts with but, you have to know what that means. And that means you have to read the whole book. That's why I gave it to you. You will never get the illumination that the Holy Spirit intends if you take this book verse and pluck it out of context and don't understand why the Holy Spirit chose to write the word but in there in English and Hebrew. But. Actually, if, if I was preaching this under different circumstances, I would say to the people, my text is the words of Micah 5.2, but my real sermon is one word, and the word is but. And this, that word but makes all the difference. That word but makes all the difference. Because you see, if you glance over, well in my Bible it's just over a column to chapter 4 verse 9. Having heard all the devastation that's coming upon Israel, we read, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? That's a rhetorical question of the prophet. And the answer is no. We don't have a king. We're being decimated by Assyria and Babylon. We don't have anyone to lead us. Our nation is falling apart. It's being destroyed. We just heard on CNN that Samaria and Israel is decimated and now we're receiving it in Judah. The enemy is at the door. Our, our temple was going to be destroyed. They're going to take our precious artifacts and take them to Babylon. We are going to be destroyed. Is there nobody to help us? Is there nobody to lead us? Is there no king? But. <laughs> but. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Why did the prophet write 
Bethlehem Ephrathah. Why did he write, shall come forth for me one who's coming forth is from old? Well, my second question I want to answer first, because this is interesting. This king that's going to be born in a little town called Bethlehem actually didn't start there, did he? That's not his origin. He actually comes forth from old, from ancient days. Now, what does that mean? Well, thankfully, the prophet Daniel, who was part of this captivity and was taken to Babylon, teaches us what that meant. He explains it for us. We don't have to conjure up any interpretations. Now, although it's ahead in time, it's behind in your Bible, so I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 7. Why did Micah write that the king is someone who comes from old, from ancient days? I believe Daniel helps us. Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel's now in Babylon. Israel is decimated. And he sees a vision in the night. And behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. You get the picture. Daniel seeing God, the Ancient of Days, on the throne. And there's someone that has a human, a manly appearance is brought to him. What happened? What did the Ancient of Days do with this human-like appearance? This one called like the Son of Man. What did he do? Verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see what Micah's doing? He's saying from this little insignificant town in Bethlehem in the midst of War and horror and terror and devastation. Someone is going to be born, but their origin is from everlasting and eternal. And this one that's going to be born is going to be the king who will rule the world forever. first question, why Bethlehem though? Why Ephrathah? Again, we're not the first readers. We're not the first listeners. If you return with me in to 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 12 
in these words. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. Ephrathah is hardly ever mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. So why would Micah say, I, I better mention Ephrathah here. Why would he do that? You can, you can test me on this. But my guess is he wanted the early readers to think of someone when he said that. When he wrote these words or said these words, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, one is going to come who is a ruler, he wanted those early listeners to say, David, ah, that's David's city. He was an Ephrathite. David, he's the one whom God said would be a ruler, would come from the loins of David, who would sit on David's throne forever. This one comes from the ancient of days, the eternal one. Didn't John pick this up when he told us first about Jesus, the Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, with the ancient of days, and the Word was God. I believe that Micah wrote these words so that his readers, those who were attuned to the covenant, those who had their hearts set on God, when they read these words, they would say, from Bethlehem is going to come the Messiah. From David's loins, he will be the eternal son of David who will reign and rule forever and ever and ever and he will be our king, and he will go before us, and he will lead us on to victory. But Micah is promising the coming of a king. But I want you to notice that it's just not a king. It's just not a king. As Micah starts to unpack what this king is like, notice the words he used. Glance at verse 4, for instance, of chapter 5. Obviously, I'm skipping along, but he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of, his, of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great and to the ends of the earth. Micah is prophesying not just a king, but a shepherd king. You go home today and you say, what was Pastor Jim's message? Oh, this is where I want you to sit and reside. The promised Messiah that would come from Bethlehem would be not just a king, but a shepherd king. And as I meditated on this this week, this made all the difference in the world to me. This made all the difference in the world to me. He could have sent a shepherd. 
God could have sent a shepherd, and oh, what a great thing that would be to have a shepherd. Someone to care for us, someone who has compassion on us, someone to take us to, 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 to quiet water, someone to refresh our soul, someone to feed us even in times of difficulty and sadness, someone who loved us and cared for us unconditionally. But being a shepherd is not enough. We need more. And he could have said, well, I'm just going to send you a king. A king who stands with authority and power. A king who makes decisive decrees. A king who holds your life in his hands, either this way or that way, depending on his will. A king who is a conqueror. A king who reigns and rules in power and majesty. And a king wouldn't have been enough for us. He sent a shepherd king. And those two words we have fused together, welded together. Total power and omnipotence and perfect love. And we as God's people need a king who is all powerful and mighty and strong, but who loves us and cares for us unconditionally. And my message this morning to you as God's people, as I'm trying to embrace it myself, is that, oh, I thank God it's that Jesus Christ is the shepherd king. I need both this morning, don't you? You need someone who's strong and mighty and powerful, but you need someone who, 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 who fuses that power with love and concern. I read many years ago a biography of, of Abraham Lincoln, and the, the biographer said that Abraham Lincoln was known as a man of gentle steel. If you're a Christian, that's your God. Almighty in power, with steadfast love that will never end. Total omnipotence, melded with perfect care and compassion. As I close this morning, I want to leave you three theological realities. The Bible tells us that all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable, firstly, for doctrine. There's doctrine here that as Christians we must know and believe. And there's three things I find in Micah 5, 2. Number one, you need to know that the birth of Jesus Christ inaugurated the messianic reign of Christ on earth. You need to know that. The night when the baby Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the reign of Jesus on this planet commenced. Number two, Jesus came from Mary, humanly, but he came from the ancient of days divinely. 
as touching his humanity, Jesus was born of a woman. And later on in this series of Christmas messages, I'm going to unpack that even further. But never forget that Mary was not the origin of Jesus. The origin of Jesus was eternal and everlasting from, from, God, from, from God, the Ancient of Days, and the Spirit. In Bethlehem, according to Micah 5.2, we have this mystery that a child was going to be born, but that's not where he started. We have before us the mystery of the incarnation that we sang about this morning. God with us. The third theological, doctrinal point you need to know is what I just finished emphasizing. That born in Bethlehem on that ancient night was not just a king and not just a shepherd, but a shepherd king. Embrace that, beloved. Grasp that, hold that, and don't let it go. This world does not need another omnipotent, terrorizing ruler. This world needs a king who is the king of kings and a shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and leads them to eternal life. And that night in Bethlehem, both arrived on planet Earth in the form of Jesus Christ, God's only Son. I have two very practical, hopefully practical things for you to think about. There's a little phrase in Micah 5.2 that I overlooked intentionally just to bring it in here. When the prophet speaks of Bethlehem, he says, you who are too little. <laughs> he just didn't say, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Do you notice that? You're too little. You are too little. And I have derived from that, and you test this and see if I'm right, that it's God's pattern all through the pages of revealed history to use little, humble, insignificant things to accomplish his great and glorious purposes. You just think about that with me. God uses little, insignificant, humble things to accomplish his great and glorious purposes. My home, we're reflecting on some of these things through the ministry and the preaching of someone else this week, and, and they're talking about Elisha was hungry. And God sent, no, Elijah was hungry, and God sent Elijah to a woman of Seraphath who had no food. Let that sink in for a minute. When, the God, when Christ and the disciples wanted to feed 5,000 plus people, who did they 
Which caterer did they use that day? A little boy. When Nathan the Syrian had leprosy, who did God use to convince him to go wash in the Jordan River? A little girl. I'm convinced that the pattern, if you, can, if you can gather a pattern from Scripture, I'm convinced that the pattern of Scripture is that God uses small, insignificant, humble things to accomplish His great purposes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, and this is spoken to you and I this morning, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. There's not too many people in Elk Point Baptist Church that blow the rector scale on wisdom. You're not debating great, deep, and, and existential thoughts with these great philosophers. Not many are powerful. Not many were noble birth. I'm guessing nobody here is of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in his sight. I would argue this morning that it's God's pattern to use humble, insignificant, small things to do great things. It might mean that God might say something like this. No point Baptist Church, you are so small. But out of you shall come. If you're here this morning and you've been reticent about serving Christ, if you've been reticent about using your gifts and abilities for his glory, if you have somehow ever thought, ever in your mind, I don't have the gifts, I don't have the strength, I don't have the abilities, I don't have, you are a candidate for God's glory. And this isn't a health, wealth, prosperity, build you up message. I'm not trying to do that. This is God's word. God uses the humble and the broken and the contrite for his glory. That's the first thing I want you to take home with you. I want you to eradicate any excuse that you're just, you don't have it all yet to be used in his kingdom. You, Bethlehem, who are too little. The second thing is, and the reason I gave you, one of the reasons I gave you the overview of Micah, and I emphasize the word but, is to help you realize that it seems to be God's pattern that in the backdrop of darkness, devastation, plague, war, decimation, and discouragement, 
and hopelessness, He brings His greatest glory. The prosperous, healthy church in North America is not the backdrop for God's glory. It seems to be God's pattern. That when the darkest nights fall, the brightest glory shines. And I would only take you to one place to prove that if I had to. Not Bethlehem. Although we could. But I would take you to Jerusalem. And I would take you to just outside the city gates on a hill called Calvary. For our shepherd king took all our sin. The darkness became palatable at noonday. And from that darkness, our shepherd king brought salvation to you and I and to all who will believe. It just seems to be God's pattern that when the nights are darkest, His glory shines the brightest. Remember that when you talk about COVID-19 this week with your friends and family in your community. What seems hopeless to our politicians and our doctors and what seems hopeless to our friends and neighbors and what seems hopeless even if we're honest with our own hearts. God will bring glory. And if you're here this morning and you've never fully trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, can I commend to you this morning a shepherd king to whom you can release your life to and say, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And he will rule over you. Not as a vicious tyrant, but a loving shepherd. I commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ to put your trust in him. And if you're a Christian... May your faith be reinvigorated this morning as you hear the words and hear the carols and see the cards. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you who are too little, too little, shall come forth from you one who will rule. May God bless you.